doing today? Good. Made the daylight savings thing. That's good. Missing that hour of sleep, I am. But oh, actually, uh, drew a topic I really want to talk about today. <laughs> it's not quite as exciting as the last time I was up here talking about drunkenness and orgies. But uh, but hopefully a decent topic nonetheless. Uh, we're continuing in a series in anticipation of Easter where we're talking about a, a thing we call good grief, an oxymoron, jumbo shrimp, civil war. And when we think of grief, we often don't think of anything good or positive. When we think of pain... We often don't think of uh, pain as being a good thing. In fact, in our society today, pain is a total enemy, and we'll do anything to eliminate pain as fast as humanly possible. So we, we often don't see the value of pain, and that's why I'm really glad that we're doing this series, because what we're looking at here is how pain can often be a blessing in disguise. And just because we're in pain or just because we're suffering does not mean necessarily that there's anything wrong with us or wrong with our spiritual connection. In fact, exactly the opposite. In a lot of cases, this pain can actually be a blessing in disguise. And the particular pain that we're talking about today is we're talking about pain in the respect of grief. Uh, courtyard grief, we're going to be talking about three things that I do unfortunately know some things about. Guilt, shame, and remorse. And the problem here with these things is, and I'm going to kind of come at this backwards, by the way. I know that won't surprise many people. <laughs> it's kind of how I do it, but, uh, you know, crawl out through the window. But I'm going to talk about some things and lay a foundation for this before we read the passage, so hopefully by explaining some things and by defining some things, what we can do then is we'll be a little better equipped when we get into today's passage to actually see the things that we're talking about here. We suffer as human beings from this triple whammy of guilt, shame, and remorse. And to define these things... We often think of guilt and we feel guilt because of the things we do. We feel shame because of the things that we have become as a result of the things we did. And we feel remorse because once those blinders come back off, we can see in hindsight what we wish we could have or should have done instead. So, for instance, when we lie, we feel guilty because of it. And then, because we lied, we now also feel shame because I am a liar. And now that I'm a liar, I feel remorse because in hindsight, I wish I would have just told the truth instead. I feel guilt because I stole. I feel shame because now I am a thief. And I feel remorse because in hindsight, I wish I would have just earned some money and bought something instead of stealing it. I feel guilt because I committed adultery. I feel shame because now I am an adulterer. 
and I feel remorse because of in hindsight, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Uh, sometimes we succumb to weakness and we feel guilty about that. And then we also feel shame because now I am a coward. And in hindsight, I wish I would have stood up and not ran away. So with these three things of guilt, shame, and remorse, uh, I was thinking this week about that term remorse because, as we just said, part of the remorse that we feel when we do things wrong is obviously we wish we hadn't have done that. But there's another thing that popped into my head this week about remorse and trying to identify this or define it. And the thing that popped into my head was another term that we often associate with remorse. We talk about buyer's remorse. Anybody ever suffer from that? (laughs) Yeah. We all know what that feels like, don't we? We watch a, a TV commercial or we read something on the Internet or we uh, stay up late at night and watch some infomercial and they lay out this product. And, man, that thing lo- just looks like the coolest thing ever. We can't live without this. So we're going to get on the phone or on the Internet and we're going to order this thing up because i got to have it. And we're excited, and we can't wait until this thing gets there. And, and when it that package shows up, it's like Christmas. And we rip that thing open, and we just can't wait. And as soon as we open the box, we pull this thing out, and we look at it, and we have that sinking feeling. And we think, oh, that's not exactly how I thought that was going to be. Or, you know, that's not exactly what I was expecting. Or maybe we try to use it for a while, and it breaks or fails or It just flat doesn't do what they said it was supposed to do. And then we feel this buyer's remorse, and we're bummed out. And you see, I think this gives us some insight into what remorse is really all about. And this fits perfectly in with what we teach here all the time at Hope. Because the problem with remorse isn't just that we bought the wrong thing so much as we believed the wrong thing. In this case, I trusted the marketers. I trusted those advertisements. When they laid this product out, they made it look better than it was. And isn't it just true that the human condition, the problem with every one of us, always boils back to deception? We buy a lie. That's what we end up buying. We are promised things. We are offered things, and based on the promises that flood into our heads, we think, yeah, this is going to be a good thing. But if the person or the thing making that promise is not trustworthy, then the decisions we make and the actions we take do not produce the promised result. And as we see that Again and again in the Bible, we can find all kinds of examples in here where the devil promised people certain things, and then they make decisions based on that lie, based on that promise, and then it blows up in their face. Because what they, because our heads say, if you do this, it's going to work out this way. So we do it, and we get a totally different result. My head said a lot of things, like, you know, You can do this crime and not get caught. (laughs) You know, there's no cops out this late at night. (laughs) 
That was always a good one. Or, you know, you can do this other thing and there's not going to be consequences. Or you can, you know, nobody's going to know. And, and on and on. And based on believing that thing that's wrong, we end up doing things that are wrong. And so when we suffer from guilt, shame, and remorse, these things really haunt us. Now, what would you think if I were to make the bold statement that guilt is not of God? Guilt is not a God thing. That would almost be blasphemy <laughs> in some churches. Out. <laughs> Get him out of here. But everybody just knows that guilt and God go together like chocolate and peanut butter, right? <laughs> I mean, isn't that just what God is all about? And the answer is no. I believe if we rightly define guilt, we start to understand that guilt, rightly defined, is never a God thing. Now, there is a feeling we get that we call guilt and that feels like guilt, but for, to differentiate this, that is something that I would like to call coming under conviction. And these things feel the same, but they're totally different because these have totally different effects on our perceptions and totally different effects on the decisions we make based on them. So, C.S. Lewis wrote this thing called The Problem of Pain. I love that book. And he made a wonderful point in there where when we experience pain, one of the main problems with that is that pain causes us to have a false conception of God. When I'm suffering, when things aren't going my way, not only am I grieving, but I also tend to look at God a little bit sideways. And I'm going, hey, if you're so kind, if you're so great, if you're so loving, how come I have this problem over here? How come I'm in pain? And I think C.S. Lewis nailed it when he explained that the two different places that our lying head goes when we're in pain is we start to see God either as unable to help us. In that case, we tend to perceive of God as an impotent God. And he's standing there going like this. His pockets are inside out, and he's skinny and weak, and he's going, dude, I see what you're going through, but, you know, I wish I could help you, but, you know, I'm actually worse off than you are. If you picture it as a financial problem, it'd be like, gosh, you know, I have this money problem. I'd like to call my dad and ask him for a few bucks, but he just called me and that wanted to borrow money from me. <laughs> so there's no reason to call him. He's, he's completely broke. Or on the other hand, even worse, when we're in pain, we start to look at God not as weak or impotent, but rather even worse, he has tremendous resources, and in that case, it's not that he can't help us, it's that he won't. And the picture there, instead of God standing there like this, it's even worse, God standing there like this, going, yeah, I see what you're going through. And yeah, I have a lot of resources, I could help you out, but you know, I just, I don't feel like it, I'm not going to. So, in that case, we see that God is abundantly rich, a, a bazillionaire, and we have a financial problem, and God's rich, but he's just not going to throw us a few bucks. 
And that really makes God either either weaker than he is or much less caring. Now, we know from the studies here at Hope that where all this intersects is there's a third thing that does not pop into our head at those times, and that is God as a loving father. And it only makes sense in the context of raising your own children. When you see God as a perfect parent, I mean, do you keep your kids safe and insulated from every possible pain until they're 18? Do you just lock them up in the basement when they're born and let them out, you know, when they graduate from high school? No. You could. You could keep them from getting skinned knees and broken hearts and even broken bones. But that's not love. So what you do as a loving parent is you prepare them for the pains of life and you let them take measured risks knowing that some of those are going to produce pain. But you're there with them through it all. The same trip to the to Walmart to buy them their first bicycle, you stop and buy some Band-Aids. Why? Because you want them to fall off the bike? Not. But you know that they, the only way they're going to learn is they are going to skin their knees. And that's not a lack of love. That takes tremendous love. To love your children enough to set them free. To love them enough to let them feel pain and to be with them and suffer with them. Not because you want them to hurt, but because you know that they're going to become stronger, better people because of it. So it's not a needless suffering. And you see, in the same vein, there's a special problem with the conception of God that pops into our head when we feel the pain that we're talking about today, the pain of grief. Because when we experience grief, there's yet another conception that our lower nature pops into our head that makes sense even though it's not true. When we start to feel guilt, shame, and remorse, at those times our temptation is to buy a lie where we start to look at God and we see God as the problem. God is the punisher. God is the judge. And if we do something wrong, God is going to get us. And if we let our guilt, as we experience that, let us, if we let that negatively affect our conception of God, then we start to look at God sideways, not as impotent and weak or not as uncaring, but even worse. God is the judge, and God is going to get us. And in that conception, then the problem with guilt, like all of our defects of character, is not just that it makes us feel bad or makes us have a sleepless night or, you know, weighs on our heart, but even worse, the problem with all of our defects is we make decisions based on them. When I'm angry, decisions I make in anger are never good decisions. (laughs) Trust me. When I am afraid, Decisions I make based on fear are never good decisions. When I feel selfish and self-centered, the decisions that come out of that selfishness are never good decisions. And that's also true of guilt as a negative thing because the decisions I make with guilt, shame, and remorse are never good decisions. Because the problem with guilt is we start to see God as a threat. 
So naturally, our solution to that is to do what? Well, I need to run from God. And I need to cover up the things I've done wrong. I need to bury these mistakes. And I need to hope that nobody, nobody including God, finds out about this. And the other problem with guilt is guilt is a hopeless condition because guilt is forever. There's no way out from guilt. Now, on the other hand, when we do this thing called coming under conviction, in that scenario, we don't see God as the problem. We see God as our solution, our only hope. And in that case, when we're under conviction, what we do is we can't wait to uncover the things we've done wrong and run to God because we know that God is standing there with open arms waiting not to punish us but to forgive us. And in running to God and uncovering these things, the beauty with conviction versus guilt is conviction is always a temporary, temporary circumstance. And it always, always, always comes with a doorway that we need to walk through to get out from under the conviction. In some circles, it's what we call making amends. Saying, you know, I know I lied. I can't wait to confess this to God, to be forgiven, and to go tell the truth. I know I stole. That was wrong. I see it now. But I can't wait to confess it to God, to have him forgive me, and then to go and give this thing back or to pay for it. You know, I know I did this thing wrong, but I can. I have an opportunity to undo the damage I've done in a lot of cases, or at least do what we can. You see, that's a whole different model for what, you know, for how we handle these things. So, and you see, there's also pain involved with all this, but the Bible says that when we're under conviction, a lot of the pain we feel, it calls it a godly sorrow. I love that term, and it it's different than what we call a worldly sorrow. If you walk down Tier 3 at the State Pen, everybody there is sorry. They're sorry they got caught. <laughs> you see, that's a worldly sorrow. You know, I'm sorry that my sins or my decisions I made affected me. I'm sorry for how these things ended up blowing up in my face. But when we have a godly sorrow, on the other hand, we still feel bad as we should, but our main pain is not that it hurt us, but it hurt other people. And that's the thing that we really need to receive as part of this gift from God. A godly sorrow that our sins or our decisions have hurt other people. So with all that in mind, the passage that we're reading today comes out of the book of Luke. It's the story of Peter and Christ. Uh, it's uh, Luke 22, 54th verse, where it says, Then seizing Christ, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. 
A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This whole mess got started earlier when they were having what we call the Last Supper, and part of that event recorded in the Bible in the book of Luke in the 22nd chapter, it talks about how uh, Peter said, and this is in our worship bulletin, but Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. I can really get inside the head of somebody like Peter because Peter was not a weakling. He was, I like to think of Peter as the kind of guy that my mom wouldn't let me play with when I was growing up. (laughs) You know, Peter was a tough guy. I really believe that. And Peter had a lot of inner strength. And I don't think that, you know, and I think that that's why he felt so bad when he made a promise that he couldn't keep. Because when he looked at Christ and said, you know, Christ just got done explaining how he was going to be arrested and they were going to have a trial, he would be convicted even though he was innocent, and he would be put to death. And Peter was the one to jump up and go, whoa, 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 if that's happening to you, it's happening to me too. He said, I am going to go on this journey with you. He said, "I they're not taking you alone. I will go with you to prison, and I will die right alongside of you. Very noble. But I also have to wonder exactly what kind of response that Peter was really expecting from Christ. You know, did he really expect Jesus to go, oh, cool, <laughs> thanks, man. I knew I could count on you, you know, more than these other guys, you know. We're going to do this thing together, baby, you and me. You know, it's almost like they were planning a road trip together. (laughs) I'll go with you. Cool, man. And Jesus said, I'm going to Google all of the nice attractions along the way. Then Peter said, I'll go buy a selfie stick. So it was almost like, you know, he was saying, I'm going to go do this thing with you, and it's going to be like buddy-buddy, you know. And and what he was agreeing to here was a very scary thing. You know, you talk to me about prison and death, you got my attention. So, but Peter didn't seem to be at all afraid of that. He was the first one to go, yeah, man, I'll, I'll be there with you. And I really have to believe that when Peter made that promise to Christ, he had every intention of being able to keep it. Isn't that true about all of us? You know, yeah, I'll come over at 6 in the morning and help move that piano. You can count on me. You know, and whatever it is. And, man, we, we all seem to want to do better than we are. We want to do things, and we agree to do things. At the moment, we get caught up in it, and we think, yeah, this is doable. But 
as the rest of the story played out, we see how Peter was not able to fulfill the promises that he made. And one of the things buried in this story that I really believe is that the pressure that Peter finally succumbed to was not a fear of death or a fear of prison or a fear of physical pain and suffering. But I think what really got to him that came out of left field was social pressure. He didn't mind dying as long as he didn't look bad. (laughs) And when people started to accuse him of being with Christ, at the moment, I think what he perhaps was feeling was, I don't want these people to think poorly of me. I don't, I want to fit in. I want to be cool. I don't want these people to look at me sideways. So in the moment, he denied knowing Christ because that was kind of the popular thing to do. And isn't that so true that for so many of us, you know, we are strong fighting temptations in some areas, and then we cave in another one. So I think that for Peter, he just didn't anticipate the social angle to this. And that's what ended up getting him. So... One of the main problems here, though, is that we all expect more of ourselves than we're capable of giving. You know, people told me that for years. You know, he writes, you know, his his mouth writes checks that his body can't cash. (laughs) Very true. And I think that's part of the human condition, but where the problem lies is when we approach Christianity, we start to approach it in an Old Testament fashion where we think what's expected of us is we are the promise maker. You see, when it comes to our faith, we understand in Christianity, human beings are promise makers and promise breakers. I'm the one that makes these promises and then I end up breaking. The point of Christianity is it's Christ. It is God who is the ultimate promise keeper, not us. You know, I I almost said promise heaper and promise keeper, because it's God who heaps promises on us, and then it's God that keeps them. I just said that because I knew Mike would like it. <laughs> and But God heaps promises on all of us. And that's why I love this ministry at Hope, because we don't focus on the Ten Commandments. We focus on the commitments. We focus on the promises that God makes to us. And those are rock-solid promises, because if God is making the promise, he is capable of keeping them, and he will. And that's a whole different mindset, but what we're led to do is to make these promises and that we cannot keep. And when we fail, the whammy that comes on the heels of guilt, shame, and remorse is that we then become our own judge, jury, and executioner, don't we? We have court on ourselves, and we start to beat ourselves up, and not only do we judge ourselves harshly, but we become our own jury, we meet out our own sentence, and then we inflict that sentence upon us. And that, and what that leads to oftentimes is not only do we break promises, but then we tend to try and pay off that debt. 
And the way we try to pay it off in many cases is through our own blood, our own sweat, and our own tears. It was a band back in the 60s, wasn't it? Blood, sweat, and tears. But that fits because think of the different ways that we try to atone for our own sin. It's really crazy once it comes to life. Oh, I know I did wrong, but it's okay. I got this one. I'm going to make up for it because I'm going to shed my blood. Or I'm going to, by the sweat of my brow, I'm going to fix this and make it right. Or I am just going to cry my way into heaven. And those are the means available to us as human beings where we try to atone. Now, we realize that atoning for a sin is different than being forgiven for it. You know, what atonement was in an Old Testament sense is, let's say I pull a pistol out of my boot and shoot your big toe off. Now, that was a wrong thing to do. <laughs> but if we want to atone for that, it's an eye for an eye. So now I hand you my pistol and you get to shoot my toe off. Now we're even. <laughs> and now we got two people limping around instead of one. That's a whole different thing than amends, where I say, you know what? I shot your toe off. Should not have done that. What can I do to make it right? Can I pay your hospital bill? Can I get you, whittle you some crutches, you know, <laughs> <laughs> carry you around until it heals, whatever it is, you know? But you see, atoning is where everybody loses. It just boils things down to its least common denominator. And that's where the ways that we try to atone for our own sins, you know, I put in Matthew 27, 3 through 5 in here. I, this really blows my mind. Uh, do, you, do you know how many people in the Bible, in the New Testament, hung from a tree for the remediation of sin? You know, tree, wooden cross, you know, all the trees sometimes. But do you know how many people the Bible says hung on a tree? To fix sin? Now, obviously, you don't, oh, Jesus, that'd be one. <laughs> I think the right answer is four. Read this account of Judas in here with me. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. This is a textbook example of somebody atoning for their own sin. The blinders came off. Judas saw what he had done and how wrong it was, and he tried to make it right. And that's the problem. He tried to make it right. And through shedding his own blood, through giving his own life, he thought, I am going to make this right. I'm going to go hang myself. I will give my own life to pay that debt. All he needed to do was ask Christ to forgive him, but obviously that didn't occur to him. So in this case, he himself hung on a tree for the remediation of his own sin. There's two other accounts in the Bible, and that is the two thieves that were crucified with Christ. And you see, in that case, those guys didn't put themselves out there to pay for their sins. They were put there by the state. It was the Romans that hung both of those guys there along with Christ, and that was a payment for their sin. 
but that was not voluntary. It was involuntary. The only difference was one of those guys accepted his punishment and said, I, we deserve to be here. The other one, not so much. <laughs> you know, he, he went out kicking and screaming, and he wasn't very happy about getting punished for the things he did wrong. But in those cases, there, too, are two examples of people who hung from a tree in order to pay, pay off their sin. And you see, the only difference was Christ died totally innocent to pay for everybody else's. And that's the beauty of that Easter story. So, not only do people sometimes shed their own blood, but and there's different ways that people do that, too. I've known people that cut themselves, and really I think a lot of that boils down to guilt. They just need to let this out. And and I get that, because we we don't feel right and we want to make it right. I knew another guy that was always bandaged up. You know, he but he was just a bruiser, but he was always injuring himself. And I know that guy had a very guilty conscience. And I think he often liked being in physical pain because somehow it rectified things out of his past. Uh, but it's not only shedding our blood, it's sometimes it's shedding our sweat. I love this account in Genesis. It says... Uh, you know, originally Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and they felt no shame, as they shouldn't have. But then it says after the fall, after they sinned, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So what did they do? Turn to God? No, they sewed fig, they got busy, they went to work. Uh, they got this, they'll fix it. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? You see, in Adam and Eve's case, they too knew they had that buyer's remorse because they trusted the ultimate marketer in the world, which at the time happened to be that serpent in the garden. And the serpent sold them a bill of goods that turned out to not be true, but they trusted the serpent more than God. Through their innocence, they ended up making some very bad decisions, and for them, once the blinders came off, they had a lot of guilt, shame, and remorse, but they were going to fix that themselves. So they went to work and figured out how to cover their nudity that they were suddenly ashamed of, and God shows up, they run from God, as guilt drives us all to do, and they start seeing God as the problem all of a sudden. And you see, there again, that is a textbook example, not only of how guilt drives us from God, but it also shows us how, through our own toil, we're going to try to make things right. And the final thing was with Peter, you know, shedding tears. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. He says, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. See, there again, Peter's guilt initially drove him to break down and cry, to just say, I need to get this out, and the way I'm going to get it out and work it out is I'm just going to make myself miserable. 
And I've known a lot of people like that. You know, whoa, whoa is me in the sackcloth and ashes. And I've known people that denied themselves a lot of pleasure, denied themselves a lot of enjoyment in life because they don't deserve it. And they don't let themselves be happy. I mean, they figure if they get something good, God's just going to take it away from them anyway and punish them. So why even try to get anything good? And where all of this ends up being backwards is the whole point of Christianity is to let God pick up the tab for us. That's the whole message of the New Testament. That's the great news of the gospel. So, interestingly, the way that Christ deals with our sin is through his blood, his sweat, and his tears. Mm, that fits pretty good, doesn't it? And you see, Christ shed his blood for us. It says in Hebrews, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? And it's also through Christ's, uh, you know, not only through his, his blood, but through his very sweat, as Mike talked last week, about how Christ, even you know, being troubled to the point of sweating, drops of blood. And again, he didn't do that for himself. It was all for us. And through Christ's tears, he shows us that he has compassion, that he cares. I think the most powerful line in the Bible is one of the shortest sentences. Christ wept. To picture God Almighty crying is crazy. Because to me, I was raised to believe crying is weakness. So to to see God, as strong as he is, crying. It talks about Christ crying over the sins of Jerusalem. He's looking down on the city, weeping bitterly. Because these guys didn't have to go that way. It didn't have to be that way for him. And he cried when his friend died. See, this care and compassion manifested in tears shed again for us, not for himself. And where this all leads, I believe, then, is there's a a rest of this story to Peter. And the way that he got reconciled to God, I think, is really critical, and I'd hate to leave this out. And that's where we get into uh, the book of John, the 21st chapter. It tells us what happened after Christ's resurrection. He comes back and spends some time with the disciples, including Peter, and this is the great interaction that they ended up having in John 21. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus, the risen Lord, said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I love this rest of this story because what it does is it takes the focus off of what Peter thought Jesus wanted from him. 
and puts his focus on what Christ really wanted from us. See, the, one of the main problem with our promises that we make to God is we have this conception where we assume we know what he wants. I can't even buy my father-in-law anything decent for Christmas. <laughs> I hate buying presents. I don't know what anybody wants. But, you know, I still, in that arrogance, I think I know what God wants. I think I know what he needs. In Peter's case, he thought Jesus, more than anything, wants somebody to keep him company as he's going to prison and he's going to die, and he wants a a buddy hanging there on the cross with him. You see, that wasn't what Christ wanted at all. What he wanted was to love Peter, and as an extension of that love, to point him towards other people, to let Peter be equipped to be used to help other people. It was service that he wanted, not sacrifice. And I know if you think like me, you know, we often think, you know, about Peter dying for God. Would I be, if my metal was tested, would I be strong enough to die for Christ? If they put a sword to my neck and say, denounce Christ or I'm going to lop your head off, would I be able in that moment to, to, you know, let them cut my head off rather than you know, then confess Christ. And you don't know. You hope that you'd say the right thing or do the right thing. But in, instead of thinking about whether or not we could die for Christ, the more important point is, are we willing to live for him? See, dying's easy. Living is hard. The greater sacrifice is when you don't die, when you get up every day and you you go out there and you do battle and you do the things you have to do, not just for yourself, the sacrifices you make for your family, the things you do for your friends, the things you do for strangers to try and feed those sheep, to get out there and get outside of ourselves and serve others in love. See, sometimes that can be even harder than a one-time event like that. It's not about dying for Christ. It's about living for him. And I think that's where a lot of the pain that we suffer, just like we wrap this up with in the worship bulletin, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. If we ask the worship team to come up, we'll do a closing song. And, and hopefully this all makes some sense about how, you know, the whole point of guilt, shame, and remorse is not to climb up on that cross next to Jesus and say, you know, it's okay, God, I'm hanging here with you, and I'm going to pay off my own sins. It's exactly the opposite. That's a cross built for one. <laughs> And the beauty is that that's not what we need to do, and we don't need to pay off this debt ourselves. We have a loving Father that's willing to do it. Thank you. Suppose this morning we just bow our heads and say, Lord, we promise that we will never make another promise to you again. <laughs> you made the promises, Lord. You keep them. And as we all gather together at the foot of your cross, we look up to you, and we simply say, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. And we all say, hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.